0: amen indeed and good morning valley bible church it's good to be with you all today thank you to our our music team for leading us in those songs Uh, talking to ben daily earlier this week and he described he works hard to tell a story through the songs and i love the way he moves us from truth to truth in a way that prepares our hearts for the word and uh, this morning's music did that well I begin with a question. What does it mean to be a biblical minister and to engage in biblical Christian ministry? And this question will be at the heart of our passage this morning and next week. And I'm trying to take something and stretch it out a little bit. What Paul is dealing with here in our, in our portion of scripture is helping this young pastor, Timothy, to be an effective minister of the gospel as a preacher of God's word in that church there in Ephesus, and how to do that in the face of the unique challenges that that church is facing. But as Paul is often fond of doing, he is laying out broad Christian principles and from those broad Christian principles, he is giving a specific application, in this case to Timothy. And so what we are going to see in the next couple of weeks is not just what does, does it need to look like to be somebody who would stand and be a preacher of God's word in a pulpit, but I believe what we're seeing is what needs to be the marks of God's minister in any context in which we are coming in the name of God to minister the word of God to the people of God. And so I think this is going to be a passage for all of us as it helps us to think through what does it require of the one who engages in the work of ministry? What sort of fruit and effect does such ministry have on others? And for far too many today who claim the name of Jesus, that foundation here laid by Paul and through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, that foundation for Christian ministry has been so compromised, so eroded that it is almost unrecognizable. A few years back, Arizona Christian University sponsored a joint study by the well-known George Barna of the Barna Group, as well as the Cultural Research Center, and they wanted to know if those who claim the name of Jesus had an understanding of how to live and minister in his name biblically. And what they found out has been a wake-up call for the church to this day. Do you believe that right and wrong are objective standards that apply to all people? If so, then you are in disagreement with 52% of all those who call themselves Christians in America. Do you believe that karma is not a biblical concept, but that God brings blessings and trials according to his purposes instead? You are again in the minority with 57% of professing Christians in disagreement with you. Do you believe the Holy Spirit is an actual person? And not a symbol or a force. You find yourself standing opposed to 58% of all who claim the name of Christ. The same percentage who would disagree with you if you believe you cannot earn your way to heaven by doing enough good stuff. You're almost certainly outnumbered by the 66% of professing Christians who believe that what faith you follow doesn't matter. As long as you have faith in something. And I think the answer that explains the rest of the poll is this. If you believe that God's word is to be trusted to guide your life over your feelings, your experience, and the input of family and friends, then you are part of only 23% of professing Christians that claim that basic fact. We live in an age that is increasingly calling for the church to be active and engaged in a whole range of cultural issues. And it's worth asking if we even know what biblical Christian ministry is anymore, or if we have allowed cultural activism to just hide it under a bushel. So how can we make sure that Valley Bible Church doesn't one day become Valley Benefits Club? And that is what we will see this morning and next week as we look at our text, First Timothy chapter 4, We'll be reading the passage we'll look at over the next two weeks in verses 11 to 16. I would invite you to stand with me to honor the reading of God's word. We worship a God who cannot lie. And therefore, all that he says is true. And we honor that truth by standing to hear these words from the inspiration of the Holy Spirit through the pen of the Apostle Paul. 1 Timothy 4.11 Prescribe and teach these things. Let no one look down on your youthfulness, but rather in speech, conduct, love, faith, and purity, show yourself an example of those who believe. Until I come, give attention to the public reading of scripture, to exhortation and teaching. Do not neglect the spiritual gift within you, which was bestowed on you through prophetic utterance with the laying on of hands by the presbytery. Take pains with these things. Be absorbed in them so that your progress will be evident to all. Pay close attention to yourself and to your teaching. Persevere in these things, for as you do this, you will ensure salvation both for yourself and for those who hear you. Would you pray with me? Father, we come this morning desirous to be a people of God who know you, we do not desire simply to be those with your name as though it were a token, but we want to be those who know your heart and imitate it as it was shown to us in your Son, Jesus Christ. And there is no way for us to do this other than to be sanctified in the truth of your word. And so help us to understand, to believe, to love, and to live in accordance with all that you have shown us of yourself. To your praise and to the glory of your Son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Well, as I said, this morning we'll begin two weeks of looking at what you might call the marks of God's minister. Paul is appealing to Timothy in powerfully strong language here, to be a minister of truth in a very particular way. And this applies most directly and immediately to any man who stands before the gathered church to teach the word of God. But I would again argue that these marks required of preachers are not in contrast to what is required of the rest of the church body, but rather are an example to be imitated, and the passage will actually explicitly say that, to be imitated by the rest of the church body. What ought to be visible throughout the entire family of God, in other words, is to be visible at the very least in those who have the heavy responsibility of proclaiming truth to the gathered church. The church is indeed in great peril if its pastors do not heed these instructions. But the church will still always perpetually be in poor health if these things are not true of us all in the body. And so in these three verses that we'll be looking at this morning, we'll be examining the content and the character of a godly minister, which Paul distills down, you probably saw it even in our reading, to doctrine and devotion. Biblical doctrine, and sincere devotion. And Paul's going to show us in these three verses two essential truths about the Christian message that we proclaim, and then he's going to take that and apply that with one big all-encompassing principle to the life of the Christian minister, before he outlines the three essential tasks or central tasks that define the heart of Christian ministry. So we're going to move from the message that God has given us to the life of the minister to the way in which we do ministry. And if we take these to heart, we cannot but please Christ. But if any of these things are missing, then we cannot please Christ. So what are these simple but essential instructions? Well, look with me first at verse 11. As Paul underscores, the Christian message is characterized by authority and clarity. Paul writes, prescribe and teach these things. We might begin by asking, as Paul addresses preaching here, when we gather on a Sunday morning to hear the teaching of God's word, is there a biblical expectation that we should have for what we're about to experience? Well, Paul certainly thought so. And as he wrote to his young preacher disciples, Timothy and Titus, he was fond of giving them the same direction. He would teach them biblical truths. And then he would say, as he does here, prescribe and teach these things. Or two chapters later, I want you to teach and preach these principles. Or in Titus chapter 2, these things speak and exhort. God has spoken to us in his word. That sentence is amazing. The God who is otherwise unknowable has spoken to us through his word. And this is the given strategy for communicating that word. Whatever the, these things are in any context, whatever it is that God has said on any subject, we are to make sure that they are communicated with clarity and with authority. Clarity is underscored by those words teach teach, speak in these three passages. An essential part of Christian ministry is explaining what God's word says and what God's word means. This is very important because the world, the flesh, and most especially the devil are very fond of that question that goes like this. Indeed, has God said that is literally the oldest trick in the book? And thanks to the fact that we have now all inherited a fallen nature in Adam, we don't need a snake in a garden to mess with us. Our own flesh is more than happy to stand up with, well, technically, is that really wrong? Could God really expect this? You're just not able to really do that right now, are you? Is that really so bad? We, we are factories of deception and truth-twisting. We produce it within ourselves. And that is why it is so essential that the people of God are constantly going back to the unchanging Word of God and saying, what does it mean? What does it mean? There, there's no secret formula here. There's no shortcuts. Second Timothy, the final letter that Paul would ever write, once again to Timothy, He says this in 2 Timothy 2 verse 14, remind them of these things and solemnly charge them in the presence of God, not to wrangle about words, which is useless and leads to the ruin of the hearers, but, and then here's all you'll want of people, it's your moment, be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. One is that famous Bible program for little children. It's an acronym for Approved Workmen Are Not Ashamed. You're welcome, Nancy. (laughs) But Paul doesn't stop there. He goes on to say this, But avoid worldly and empty chatter, for it will lead to further ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. The options before the believer are not to listen to the voice of God or to sit in silence. The world is full of signal and noise. If you imagine your soul like a radio tuner, every channel is full of a message. And every message is one that will lead you astray except for one. And for the Christian, we must constantly be tuning our soul to listen to the words of the living God alone. And that is hard work, because if we will not, not only will we be led astray, but we find out that the messages that this world, that our flesh, have to give us are infectious, that they spread like gangrene. And so the importance is clear. We have to know the word. We simply must. We must read it. We must study it. We must be working in it until we are confident we know what God meant by what God said. And only then can we be a minister of the word of God, able to clearly teach and explain that to others as well. Thankful for Mike Powell, who just finished up a Sunday school class on this very topic If you missed it, stand in the doors, it's kind of a choke point, and ask everybody who comes through, were you in Mike's class? Were you in Mike's class? Till someone says yes, and then be like, all right, we're getting lunch, tell me what you learned. We all have the opportunity to be engaged in learning how to know what God meant by what God said. The church cannot long remain Christian in any identifiable way, If those who preach from her pulpits do not teach God's word and do not teach it clearly, but we can extend this. And I would also assert Christian homes cannot long remain Christian in more than title only if they are not led by parents. And no, dad, we can't just delegate this to our wives. If they are not led by parents who teach God's word and make it plain. I'll tell you what, I think a lot of honorary doctorates ought to be given to fathers and mothers who can explain the things of God for the understanding of a five year old long before they're given to some PhD who can just wow you with a big vocabulary. If you're wondering if I've forgotten you singles out there, no, I did not. I'm glad God has brought you to our church. Do what Paul did. Do what Paul did. Use that extra time and opportunity to study God's word even more so that you can help the whole church better understand what God meant by what God said. And by the way, just a footnote here just as we've discussed at the office of, of elder or overseer, the role of preaching and corporate worship, such as you're seeing this morning, is reserved biblically for men. That doesn't mean this isn't an important lesson for all of the women in God's church. Just as Aquila and Priscilla pulled Apollos aside to straighten out his theology, so too should any daughter of the king be ready to make plain the word of God with passion and precision. It has never been less true, maybe even never been more true, that the church needs women who know the word and who are able to make it clear and make it plain. The discipleship of the next generation at the very least rests upon that and so much more besides. We are to be unembarrassed and unambiguous when it comes to God's words to us. And the reason this is so essential is because we're not meant ultimately to just be informed by these words, but we are meant to be transformed by them. These words come with the weight of divine authority, and we must not shy away from that reality, whether it's in a pulpit, a playroom, a porch, a profession, a political office, or anywhere else. That authority in the text is underlined by the words we saw earlier, prescribe, preach, exhort. In fact, the word preach and exhort are both the same word in Greek. They mean to call upon somebody for morally right living. It's a a warning that says, turn away from sin. Do not go down that road. That is the way of ruin. This is the path of life. Return to it. And if you're wondering how strong that appeal is meant to be, well, look at the word in our text this morning, translated "prescribe" in the New American Standard. But if you look up this verse in the top 20 English translations, you'll discover 13 of those translations use the word command. And another five use the phrase insist on. This isn't prescribed by going to a doctor saying, I have a tummy ache, and he says, well, try this. Two of these twice a day, see if it helps, see you in a month. Now this is prescribed as in, the God of the universe has spoken, this is what he says we must do, period. When God has said something, it needs to be delivered with the authority of the one who said it. Imagine perhaps a scene in my home, I turn to one of my children and say, hearken young offspring, I need to, you, you to be a herald of news, of great import for your siblings, concerning the cleaning of the rooms, ere supper is served. I dispatch you thence to carry this message. And my child goes off down the hall with a dictionary. My dad's so weird. But they get to the room, they look in the room, and what do they see? They see their other siblings sitting about engaged in some kind of play, some form of entertainment. And they're thinking, they are not going to be happy to hear that the voice of our father has said, stop, do a chore, come to dinner. And so what comes out instead is something like, hey, you know... Messy rooms probably isn't dad's best for us, but I won't judge. They have utterly failed. They've utterly failed in the tasks that they were sent for. I'm thankful that it's not what my children do. Though, yes, I do talk to them really weird sometimes. So that that part's fairly honest. But that is that is not an acceptable way of transferring the message of a father because it lacked all the authority of their father. It would have been just as inappropriate for my child to enter the room and say, Hey everybody, I'm telling you to clean this up right now, I'm telling you to wash your hands and come to dinner because they don't have the authority to make that proclamation either. But when the one who has authority, when the father has spoken and has entrusted that message to the child, their responsibility is to take the authoritative message of the father and deliver it with the authority of the father to the intended audience. And so it must be with us. Those of us who have been entrusted with the words of God do not have the freedom to choose when and when we won't actually say what he said the way he said it. We must be gracious, yes, we must be patient, we must be long-suffering in how we minister to others, but we must not be timid in calling for right living to accomplish, excuse me, to accompany right doctrine. As it pertains to what is happening here on Sunday mornings, Broadus and his classic work on preaching writes. The application in a sermon is not merely an appendage to the discussion or a subordinate part of it, but is the main thing to be done. If there is no summons, there is no sermon. This was a warning to preachers. If you stand up and you open God's word and you are unwilling to call for a conformity of life to truth, then you have failed to do what God has called you to do. That's hard for me. I'm a people pleaser. I'd much rather stand up here, push my proverbial glasses up my nose, say, I saw something cool in the Greek this week. I brought a map. I brought a chart. I've got an outline. It used to be alliterated until Mike Powell got a hold of me. <laughs> like, that's my comfort zone to be like, so this is really cool. Now take and make of it what you will. And it's hard. To stand and say, this is what God's word has said and therefore this is what we must do in response. Do you know it's harder than that? To have that same kind of a conversation across a kitchen table or with a friend when the friendship's on the line. We must be willing to speak the words of God, not diminishing the authority of God so that it can have the effect that God intends on the lives of others. This and only this accomplishes the great commission given to us by our Savior. Yes, we are to make disciples. We are to baptize those disciples in the name of the triune God. But we are not merely to just teach them what Jesus commanded, but teach them to observe all that Jesus commanded. When the word of God is unsheathed, that double-edged sword is meant to have an effect Ministry divorced from God's word is not Christian. Ministry divorced from grace is not gospel. And ministry depleted of authority is not acceptable. When God uses a period, we should not make it a question mark. When God uses a point of exclamation, we cannot turn it into a comma and then add some hedging to the end to take the edge off. This then begs the question, is it not dangerous to carry such moral authority around with such a powerful message and one so easily twisted to serve wicked ends, what sort of minister can be entrusted to carry this task out? And some of you have experienced this, somebody who, who comes with authority, but they're taking God's word and they are making a distortion, a mockery of it. They are using it not as the words of the living God, but as their own personal bludgeon to exert power over other people. And, and it's tempting to see something like that and say, what we need to do is strip the authority out of this equation because it can be used to harm. And the answer is no, we must never. We must return that authority to the one who actually has it, to the God who spoke. And who can do that? Excellent question. And Paul is ready to oblige us with a speedy answer in verse 12. The Christian minister is qualified by godliness. First Timothy 4:12 says this, let no one look down on your youthfulness, but rather in speech, conduct, love, faith and purity, show yourself an example of those who believe. As a pastor to youth, I love this verse. Some of our youth are with us in this service. We criminally underestimate the potential maturity of our youth. We really do. And I am so thankful for those who just last service on the other side of that wall, on that whole wing, were teaching the truths of God's word deeply to our youth, and those who on the other side of that wall are even now teaching the truths of God's word deeply to our children, so that they might be prepared to show themselves an example of those who believe. But this verse is much more than just a pep talk to the very young. It is a very convicting and a very encouraging principle to govern all Christian ministry in the pulpit and out of it. And here's the first part, the encouraging part. The qualifications that matter to the world do not matter to God when it comes to ministry. The qualifications that matter to the world do not matter to God when it comes to ministry. Paul tells Timothy, let no one look down on, and that's not just like giving a little bit of the side eye, This was a word that means to detest, to despise. Paul says, let nobody dismiss you with disgust or disdain because of your youthfulness. In the ancient world, agedness was king. Authority, respectability, influence, power, that was the domain of the elderly. They were the honored ones. To be called a young whippersnapper was quite an insult, not just a joking term of endearment. For Timothy, his age was a major cultural liability. He was too young in their culture to be recognized as a voice of wisdom or of maturity. He was dismissed out of hand. Most scholars believed Timothy, if you try to get the timelines and stuff lined up, was probably late 20s, perhaps early 30s at this point, and that just wasn't good enough. The word youth today, we tend to think more teenager. In the ancient world, youth went from about 12 to about 40, and if you're wondering, Well, where did adolescence fit? It wasn't there, but that's a soapbox for another time. But from about the age of 12 to about the age of 40, you were considered to be in your youth, and you were considered to not be ready for any real responsibility that you could have as an example for everybody else. You're still playing catch-up. I was a little dismayed last year when I turned 40, to to mentally prepare myself to think of myself as biblically old. So I was delighted in my studies to find at least one Greek reference to a youth who was still 46. And so I'm going to run with that number until I get there, and then I'll figure out what to do after that point. We're talking about a broad age range here. And Timothy did not fit in the right part of the equation to be afforded cultural respect. And Paul says, Do not let anybody dismiss you out of hand for a category that God does not recognize as significant. Our culture is backwards of this, we glorify youthfulness. We tend to see the older generation as outdated, as irrelevant in our technology-driven, fast-paced, ever-changing, modern world. And this verse reminds us age, like height, like ethnicity, educational background, socioeconomic status, career, all of these categories, they are not what God is looking for to qualify God's minister to use his word in his name for his purposes. And I think that is very encouraging whether you think you're too young, you're too old, you're too insignificant, you're too damaged by your past, you're too this, you're too that, almost any category you can imagine, you are not to be despised or rejected as a minister of God's truth if, and the if is very important, but I don't want to get to the if until we've let this first part sink in. What is it about yourself perhaps that you've used as this is the reason why it's not worth my effort to try to become skilled in the word of God and in the proclamation of the word of God and the ministry of the word of God? What is it about your personality, your background, your experiences that have made you decide that's just not for me? Is it possible that that thing is not something God would recognize as being legitimate at all? Do you have his spirit living within you? Do you have his word in your hand? Then you have everything you need to begin the lifelong process of learning to take take God's word and move it from your hand to your head, your head to your heart, your heart to your life, your life to your lips for the building up of others around you. And that to your life part is the important if I just mentioned. The qualifications that matter to the world do not matter to God, but there are indeed qualifications that do matter to God, and they are what Ben has been preaching through at length the last several weeks, godliness, godliness. Not just godly words, but a godly life. The sharp edge of Scripture must be tested first against the soul of the one who proclaims it. God's minister must see his life shaped by God's word before he shapes his words to tell of life in God. When Paul calls Timothy to be an example of those who believe, he uses a very interesting word here for example. It's a word that means to leave a mark or an impression through a blow or a strike, a stamp. It's the word used elsewhere to speak of the marks in the hands and the side of Jesus that he wore unmistakably after his resurrection. What Paul is saying is that those who would be effective in Christian ministry must be those who have been shaped, who have been impressed by that which they now teach and minister. Their lives must conform to and demonstrate God's message because they are not coming in their own name or with their own words, they are coming to relay that which they have received. And if the life of God's minister is not conformed to the words of God, then his ministry is just hypocritical error. And Paul demonstrates how entirely we should be transformed by the clarity and authority of God's word by giving five aspects of the Christian life. Beginning with speech, which is not surprising. Our words must conform to God's words. As James reminds us, if you can figure out how to bridle this thing, you can bridle everything. Our words are notoriously hard to bring under control because it is out of our heart that our mouth speaks. And how often when we have waltzed into sin, have we looked back to realize it was with our tongue that we sinned first. This is harder than I thought it would be. As a a mental exercise, imagine this last week, Jesus had accompanied you everywhere. And every time you said something, Jesus would either say amen or arch his eyebrow at you. Now, that doesn't mean you can't say like, I'd really like to get some lunch right now. Jesus would probably say amen. True statement. This is not saying that all of our words have to be this sort of artificial piety if we only quote scripture and we only speak of theology. But how many times this week would Jesus have been arching his eyebrow at you and saying, really, is that what you said? Really, is that what you meant? Really, is that what you were thinking? Really, is that what you wanted? Really, is that funny? Really, is that entertaining? Really, is that a good use of your time, right? This is convicting to wonder if the Savior himself were following us if our speeches would echo his standard of truth. That's accompanied by what we've already begun discussing, our conduct. Not only must our words conform to God's words, our lives must conform to God's commandments. We are not to be these lives that just ricochet with impulsivity, bouncing from one desire of the flesh to the other. But as the Spirit has produced his fruit in us, we need to have learned how to walk in the self-control that God brings into the life of the believer so that our actions are now governed by what he says is true. And this is hard. But Paul tells Timothy, do not let people despise you because you're young. Instead, with your words, speak only what God would say and with your actions, and this is a broad word, our habits, our customs, our manners with all that you conduct yourself will be a living demonstration of those true words that you have learned to speak. Which leads third then to love. Our love is to be an imitation of God's love. We know love is a big deal. Love is that reality that defined the relationship of the Trinity for all eternity within itself. Love scripture says was the motivation for for God choosing the whole plan of salvation. Love was demonstrated when Christ is on the cross and the Father crushed him for our sin. Love is to be the calling card and defining characteristic of God's followers, the disciples. Love is that reality that we are being brought into with God through fellowship with his spirit. And one day, love is going to be the reality that we live in perfectly for all the coming ages of eternity. And love is really hard when people are annoying. But that's the only time we'll know if we've learned what it means. If I were to announce to a group, hey, we're going to ice cream, I could see a demonstration of a kind of love, but I would have no clue if there was any gospel love in it, for that would excite the flesh as much as the soul. But now take one sibling to enter the room of another and take that prized possession, and now we have an opportunity to see what love looks like. And if one is able to understand that I can imitate a father who shows grace and love to sinners by how I treat the one who has sinned against me." Paul is sending Timothy into a very difficult ministry environment with a bunch of aged and strong-willed men who are preaching false doctrine. The church is full of drama. There's strife and division lines. And he's telling Timothy, no, you can't back down. You need to go and command God's word to be true. And in your life, when they look at you, they need to not see the harshness. They need to not see the selfishness. They need to not see the power grabbing, greedy nature of worldly leadership. They need to see in the way that you minister truth to annoying people, an example of gospel love. That's hard. But without that, can any of us preach God's word as God intended and without doing damage instead of blessing to those who hear? A life of love will lead naturally into a life of faith. Our trust in God's promises unshakably Martin Lloyd-Jones in his book on preaching talked about the kind of person to look for in a, in a potential preacher. And he said, watch out for those guys who are just unstable. So watch out for the guys who are always moving from crisis to crisis to crisis, where their lives are constantly characterized by, by a fleeting attraction to things and whose minds are characterized by always being completely absorbed by the last book they read that they are double-minded and unstable in all their ways. He said, don't let those guys near a pulpit, no matter how much passion they have. He said, instead, you need to find those who have been in God's word, so convinced of its clarity and its authority, and so committed to that word, that that has brought rest to their soul. As the old adage says, it's okay if the man's in the storm, but it's a problem when the storm gets in the man. if we're gonna be effective ministers of God's truth, we must have stood upon the rock that does not move. All other ground is sinking sand. And this challenges us to be people of unshakable trust in the promises of God that manifests itself as a regulating principle so that our life of words and conduct and love is able to be maintained steadfastly with faithfulness. Leading lastly to purity, our hearts turning to what is good and hating what is evil. Timothy finds himself in a culture characterized by moral rot. One of the largest, most immoral worship centers in the ancient world is on the hill right near their church. The city has normalized immorality of all kinds. Greed and deception and manipulation are all praised as methods and means by which to gain power and influence. And Paul is writing to Timothy and he says, your life, Timothy, needs to have a decisive line drawn through it where what God calls righteous is here and what God calls unrighteous is there. And that has become a chasm you will not cross so that when people look at you, they will not be able to mistake you for somebody who lives as a citizen of this world and its kingdom and instead in your life will be able to see an example of purity exemplifying a citizen of God's kingdom and the world to come. This is the minister who can take up the word of God in all its clarity and and authority and engage in God-honoring Christian ministry. And that ministry will also revolve around the word of God, just as everything else has up to this point. And so briefly, look with me at verse 13 as we close this morning. The Christian ministry is faithfulness to the message. First Timothy 4.13, until I come, give attention. Literally just says to reading, exhortation, teaching. Paul ends this section by calling on Timothy to give careful attention to these three simple things. They will not be the entirety of all Christian ministry. They won't even be the entirety of all Christian preaching, but they are all essential components of all Christian ministry. Whether you're leading a Sunday school class or an orphanage or your own home, Christian ministry will include the following, the hearing of God's word, the encouragement of God's word, and the meaning of God's word. The hearing of God's word, the encouragement of God's word, and the meaning of God's word. It's a practical lesson for Timothy and for us. When I first began studying this passage, I looked at that word translated exhortation in the New American Standard, and I assumed, okay, that's going to be the usual Greek word there for exhortation. It's one we saw earlier, to call people to morally right action, to to appeal to them, to turn from their sin and to turn for righteousness. I assumed what he was doing here was underlining the authority he had mentioned earlier. And then when I looked up this word, I realized that's a different word here. And almost everywhere else in the New Testament where it's translated, it's translated as comfort or encouragement. And I think it is a very intentional move on Paul's part, having woken up this young pastor and saying, you must go with authority and clarity and preach the word of God in a difficult situation. Yes, they're going to want to despise you because you don't meet the cultural qualifications, but that's not what God's looking for. You must be a man of personal godliness unafraid of the truth of God. And when you go to minister it, you need to go and you need to read it. They need to understand what God has actually said, not just about what God has said, not just an interpretation of what God has said. We need to hear the words of God and then you need to comfort people with those words. You need to encourage people with those words. Paul's not trying to turn Timothy into a man who is all rebuke and harshness but he is trying to create a man who is fearless to repeat what God has said after God with the heart of God, desiring to be a blessing and not just desiring to be a slave master. As the music team comes forward, I encourage us to take this passage like a mirror and hold it up before us. It's such a great way to examine our own hearts. To look down at our foundation and ask, is my faith built upon the clarity and the authority of Scripture? Or have I compromised that foundation with human wisdom? And then upon that foundation, is my life characterized by godliness in my speech, conduct, love, faith, and purity is the truth of God's word perkling up through my heart in such a way that it is conforming my life into the image of Christ. And from that is then my ministry to others around me, my ministry of truth an overflow of these things working themselves out and through us by our declaration of God's word, our encouragement of others with it, and our commitment to rightly understanding and explaining its meaning. Last week, we had the privilege of seeing baptisms. And one thing that meant a great deal to me as a youth pastor was to see one of our young women be baptized wearing a shirt from one of our youth camps. And that youth camp had the words of 1 Timothy 4.12 emblazoned on it in big, bold letters. And what a great picture it was of this young woman at the same time declaring her complete reliance on her savior alone for salvation and her wholehearted desire to see all of her life in obedience conform to his word. So may be the testimony of our lives individually and our church as a whole. Amen.